according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 17 once again. Proverbs 17, as we've been looking at, um, well, let's see, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And uh, this is really the first of our friend and brother passages that we have in several places throughout the Proverbs. And uh, interesting that uh, it comes up here. It doesn't come up in the uh, section from uh, chapters 1 through 9. It comes up in the section from chapters 10 through 24, the personal and public wisdom portion of the book. And I find that interesting because obviously you have brothers when you're a child, you have siblings uh, when you're under your parents' authority and as you're growing up. But the uh, wisdom application between brothers is given in the, uh, in the adult status. When you uh, have left home, when you are in your own generation, accountable before the Lord. And uh, it's in that context then that friends and brothers is uh, developed in the book of Proverbs for us in this way. So we looked at this uh, a week ago, a couple of weeks before that, I don't remember. I know we had one week off when I was in Reno. It's been... Uh, a crazy few weeks here lately. Let's start with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us here today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together to receive instruction. Father, we ask for your hand of protection as there have been more shootings here lately in our country. We recognize that our country is under discipline and under testing. And uh, as the darkness gets darker, Father, we thank you that our light can shine brighter. But we do pray that you would uh, place a hedge of protection in this uh, building and these brothers and sisters that have assembled together to uh, study to show ourselves approved. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have under point 17 in the outline then, wisdom principles for friends and brothers. And uh, started to look at the vocabulary for friends and brothers that are given in the personal and public wisdom collection. Also, we're going to see some more in the accumulated wisdom collection. And that accumulated wisdom collection is interesting because this is the collection after chapter 25 whereby uh, they weren't added to the canon of Scripture until the days of Hezekiah. And so for a couple hundred years, the book of Proverbs only had 24 chapters. And, uh, you know, little kids would be learning Proverbs and only had 24 chapters in it. And not until the, uh, the days of Hezekiah then that the additional chapters were then added to the canon. I find that interesting. And so we had the vocabulary of rent for friend, which is also translated neighbor, and a bit of discussion on why is it that friend and neighbor are not just synonyms. If you, if you thought they were synonyms, that's not correct. They are, they are translations of the same term. They're the same word. It's the same Hebrew word. Right? And it's translated as neighbor in a lot of places and translated as friend in a lot of places. And then the ach, that's your brother, the blood relation that we have nine times in, uh, in Proverbs. The imperative to love one's neighbor uses the same vocabulary as this proverb. So if a friend loves at all times and you're to love your neighbor, then it's the same vocabulary. And we can't be weaseling out like the Pharisees and saying, well, who's my neighbor, you know. Yes, and I love those verses. When we understand the command to love your neighbor, 
as Jesus teaches it, is especially if he is poor and could do nothing for you. The blessings we have to love your neighbor, knowing that there's nothing, you're expecting nothing in return, and given uh, the destitute nature of your, of your neighbor, there's no way that he can ever repay. And so that's uh, Luke 14 there, 12 through 14, I think, addresses that very well. All right, so we move on to verse 18. If a friend loves at all times and a brother is born, born for adversity, what about uh, becoming a pledge, becoming a guarantor? A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Now again, we have to, uh, I'm not going to use the word unpack this. We talked about <laughs> if we unpack this, that's, that's overused. I, like Robert, I'm getting sick of the, hearing that on TV. But we want to develop this biblically. We want to exegete the passage as it unfolds in, uh, in the passage. Because the neighbor in verse 18 is the friend in verse 17. It's the same word. It's the same right. And so uh, let's not hamper ourselves by the English rendering. Let's recognizing that uh, verse 17 and verse 18 are side by side for a reason. And yes, a rent loves at all times. Uh, but to become a guarantor in the presence of his rent, um, we do love but our love for one another does not violate wisdom, does not violate Scripture. And so we want to be clear on this. And it's not drawing a line in the sand. It's not, um, it's not having limits on our love that are artificial limits or human limits. In other words, we did talk about how a friend loves at all times, how greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. We talk about the nature of sacrificial love, uh, in the sense that as Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down, we'd be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we don't draw a line in the sand and say, that's it, you've exhausted your love. Uh, you're not entitled to any more love. That's enough. No more for you. Uh, you know, and we don't recharge the love based upon, you know, you've got to start showing me some love now. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't gauge our love based upon uh, on, on what the person has earned or deserved. So but what we do have to do, though, is apply our love appropriately. And so you don't stop loving your neighbor when you uh, decline his request to become his guarantor. Okay? In fact, you're loving him at that time. It is a love application to say no. To say, no, this is not the will of God for me. And so it does not mean destroying your soul with foolish, unbiblical, financial enslavement. And, the, and what we have here is just one verse. And this is a reminder of what we had in chapter 6 when there were five verses that were spelled out. Five verses that were spelled out in the parental wisdom portion of the book. And so we'll look at that here in a moment. But just examine the poetry of it here. A man lacking in sense. To be deficient in heart is what it talks about. And because it does, it destroys the heart. It diminishes the heart. And uh, this idiom we've had several times throughout the book of Proverbs, lacking sense is, is lave, lavav is the, is the heart. And so if you have a heart deficiency, and uh, what, what does happen for believers when, uh, when he gives us a new heart at the moment of salvation, but we have to train that heart, we have to nurture that heart, we have to feed that heart, Believers that become uh, malnourished, 
become, uh, by not taking in the Bible, not taking in the Word of God, what do they end up with? They end up with a, a deficient heart. They end up with heart, you could think of it as heart disease or think of it as a heart, diminished heart capacity. And so that's what we see here. A man lacking in sense pledges. In other words, your neighbor has trouble and you say, oh, I'm good for that. And you, you become enslaved financially. You put your own assets on the line. You, you offer up your own house as collateral for your neighbor's uh, sketchy business dealings, his get-rich-quick scheme or his, uh, you know, this Nigerian email that came and, and all he needs to do is give over his bank account information and, and, uh, and then the, the millions of dollars will start being deposited. No, it's a scam. They're not going to deposit millions of dollars. They're going to drain your account is what they're going to do. And you're going to have zero instead of the millions that they, uh, they promised that they were going to give you. So to become a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor, in the presence of his rank. And that's significant. So now, we've seen the uh, heart lack and the uh, vocabulary there. Let's look back at chapter 6. This is just a reminder, it's one verse, or as opposed to the five verses that we had here. My son, if you have become surety for your rape, your neighbor, or your friend, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. And that's the parallelism. The friend is now a stranger. Okay? How does a friend become a stranger? I've known him for years. He can become a stranger like that if I get entangled financially in some issues there and now he's not a friend anymore. Now he's some guy I used to know. Okay? Now he's a stranger. And it's the the unbiblical financial enslavement that drove that wedge in there. It shouldn't have been there. So if you have become surety for your rate, for your neighbor, for your friend, and have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, in other words, you agreed to it. You said you would do it. Well, you said something you shouldn't have said. You said too quickly, you didn't think it through. You allowed your friendship to cloud your judgment because Biblically, you should have known better. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Deliver yourself. Now that's tough language. That's harsh language. He says, save yourself. You know, in most chapters, most verses of the Bible, you can't save yourself. God has to save you. There's no salvation. You know, we're talking, of course, your eternal salvation. No one can save yourself. But here, this is a, a financial rescue. You need a bailout. And the bailout is you. Get out of this. You got yourself into this. You, you uh, made a pledge. You said you were going to do something and you violated Scripture when you did it. So the sooner you can get yourself out of that, the better. Right? Two wrongs don't make a right, but you got to make this right. You got to get out of this wrong thing. So deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. It's enslaving. And he's now the master. When you're unequally yoked, it's the, it's the wicked end of that unequal yoke that controls the, the godly end, that controls the believer. 
If it's a, if you're if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, unequally yoked. All right. So do this. Go and humble yourself. Importune your neighbor. It's humiliating. It's absolutely humiliating, but you have to go to them and you've got to just confess it all and say, I was wrong. And you have to beg and you have to plead. And it might not be the best of terms. When you cut your losses, it's going to hurt. But you'll be thankful for it afterwards that you're no longer under that yoke. Importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Don't rest. Don't rest for a moment. Don't wait for tomorrow. Get it done now. Today's the day. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand. That's how deadly that we're talking about this here. He's going to eat you. The hunter does not take the gazelle in hand for, for the gazelle's benefit. Okay? And, and again, the reason why, you say, well, he's my friend. Can I do something nice for my friend? Can't? We're talking about financial enslavement. We're talking about a contractual obligation. We're talking about, and the Bible has mechanisms for all of this. It's to be within family. See, this is why, and this, and this is why it's so alien for us today. We have to kind of step out of the 21st century, go back to the ancient world, understand what it was like there, uh, um, absorb the principles absorb the principles that are grounded in that so that then when we do return to the 21st century and we make our own applications we can make legitimate applications and and not not get off the rails Does that make sense and so understand biblically speaking now marriage was the business dealings marriage linking families linking clans linking tribes on the basis of marital relations, on the basis of these contracts between families and clans and, tr- and even tribes. That's how collateral was driven. That's how um, guarantors were founded. That's how uh, those were the appropriate places, the legitimate places. So that... Um, you know, you have to ask yourself here, why does this neighbor want my guarantee on his, on his uh, business dealing, on his venture, on his whatever it is he's doing? Okay? And it might be a good thing that, uh, that he's doing. We're not saying it's wrong. We're not saying, but I'm not the one to do this. See? Why does he not um, arrange a marriage with his daughter to to my son or to somebody else. Um, what, uh, what does his father-in-law think of this sketchy arrangement? <laughs> why, why is his father-in-law not the guarantor for this? Because his father-in-law conceivably received the, the bridal payment when he married his daughter. He's still holding in trust those funds in case something happens to this man and he has to take the daughter back in his house again. Okay? Now, <laughs> some of these things are um, lost to us today because we don't have arranged marriages, we don't have uh, financial uh, links, well, I guess sometimes we do, with, uh, with the in-laws. Okay? So some of this is... Uh, but 
understand God designed it and in, in the system that the ancient world employed, the system that, that God utilized with His theocratic nation of the Old Testament with Israel, is that this was the procedure. This was the, and so that those extended families, the clans and the tribes, those extended families had personal interests because they were related. They were, it, was, it, was, it was blood as well as, as water, right? It was, it was um, they had a personal interest. The father-in-law wanted your business dealings to succeed because he was the grandfather of your children. And he had a personal love interest in you and your spouse and your children. And so he, it was not just a business venture where he wanted you to succeed, it was also uh, a family matter where he needed you to succeed. Okay? Because if you failed it, he failed. And it hurt him. So all of those dynamics are at work. And the reason why you would never go to a neighbor, you would never go to a race, because you, you should have an ach, you should have a brother, you should have a father, you should have family. That was the appropriate biblical mechanism for these uh, business dealings. All right. So rescue yourself, deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. And, and importuning your neighbor, begging your neighbor, pleading to be released, um, it's, it's humiliating, it's uh, shameful, but it's necessary. And that's coming from the God of truth who holds us to our vows. <laughs> the God of truth who otherwise would say, you made a statement you now face the consequences. But in this, in this statement, in this consequence, get yourself out from it. Break yourself from this. Uh, don't destroy your soul with this foolish, unbiblical financial enslavement. And I think that's the, the, the language of it there in chapter 17. That the only way to do this is if you're lacking sense because it's damaging to your heart damaging to your lavav. All right. So one quick verse to recap everything that we spent hours on back in chapter 6. Then we get verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21. Proverbs 19, uh, 17 verses 19 through 21 features five he who's. Five he who's. All with negative personal and public harm. So this is the man your mother warned you about. <laughs> okay, the, These are the he-whos that are mentioned here. So notice in verse 19, it's he who loves transgression. That's the first of the five he-whos. I mean, everybody falls short. We all sin. But most of us don't love doing it. He who loves transgression. And then the second he-who he who raises his door. And that one's confusing. I'll be, everybody has trouble with that phrase. You read 100 commentaries, you're going to get 115 opinions because nobody, well, we can kind of guess at the, at the uh, meaning because it's in parallelism with the other statements. Uh, but raising his door, who would do that? And what's that about? The third he who, he who has a crooked mind. He who has a crooked mind. So there's he who number three. And all of these guys are trouble. 
they are personally trouble for themselves, but they are publicly trouble for the community. They're publicly trouble for their neighbors, for their friends, for the, the uh, fellow citizens of whatever village or, or uh, region, we would say whatever town or state or, or country they live in. There's five of these he-whos. He who loves transgression, he who raises his door, he who has a crooked mind, he who is perverted in his language. So there's the crooked thinkers and the pervert speakers. That's the fourth he who. And then he who number five gets the whole verse to himself. So there's two he who's in uh, verse 19. There's two he who's in verse 20. And then the he who in verse 21 is just one guy, but he has two events. He who sires a fool. And then he's also described as the father of a fool. It's the same he who, but in two stages of life. The birthing and then the, um, the adult son that never had the foolishness pounded out of him as, uh, as it should have been. Alright, so this is what we're looking at here. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. We start with he who loves transgression. So sub-point A. He who loves transgression. To love what God hates is obviously wrong, but it's, it's deeper than that. It actually reflects a um, really a defiance. It reflects a satanic defiance. Remember, love is supposed to conceal a transgression. We've had that several times, most recently in this chapter. Um, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. And so the right application of love is to observe your brother's transgression and then to, uh, to conceal it, to, to uh, get him through that, to, uh, to address your brother in such a way privately that he can recover from that transgression, that he can uh, repent and, and grow in the things of the Lord. And so you learn about this transgression, you learn about this issue, and uh, love is going to conceal it, whereas arrogance is going to broadcast it. The, the, the gossip is going to run to the, the first five people he can, the first 20 people he can, and start spreading it all around, uh, start uh, celebrating your brother's demise in such a way that he can't ever recover. You just made, you just multiplied the issue and uh, done so much damage in the meantime. No, love conceals and we discussed that. Love is supposed to conceal a transgression. But to love transgression itself, to love transgression itself, loves the strife that results in friendship death. Remember, that's the, we discussed that a couple weeks ago, the, the idea of separation, to separate intimate friends. To love the strife that results in friendship death. The ongoing price that continues to get paid for ongoing transgressions. And so this is, uh, this is what we look at. And it's the world we live in. And it's sad. This is the defiant love for what God personally hates the most. And so I think this, uh, this really 
culminates a lot of previous principles that we've seen. Again, back to Proverbs 6. So many of these things are reflective of concepts that were taught in Proverbs chapter 6. Things that you learned as a child, but now you get new dimensions of application now that you can see the the destruction. I think, uh, you know, you teach your child about everything. You teach them about the whole counsel of the Word of God. You teach them about different sins. You teach your child about uh, thou shalt not steal. You teach your child about the, the dangers of drunkenness. You teach your child about promiscuity. And in all these things you're teaching biblical content based upon thou shalt not, okay? Based upon this is bad, don't do it. And here's consequences when you do it. Alright? And the child can learn those things. They can learn those things academically, can learn those things uh, biblically, can learn those things. But think about the perspective you have as an adult. And think about the, um, the, the, the full depth of how true it is. For example, when you see a friend of yours who ruins his marriage with 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 uh, adultery who who destroys his life with drunkenness you know because you see it you have a you have a coworker you see who's on his fourth marriage fifth marriage whatever you have a you have a, a coworker that's that's just lost everything because of his cocaine addiction you 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 watch you just see example after example after example and with the adult capacity <laughs> to process the Word of God, it's the same lesson mom told you when you were five, but now, wow, now the, the scriptures are, are just that much more um, in focus, that much more vivid. And so I think this is one of these, these aspects here. Now, to love transgression loves strife. Loves strife. To love the sin itself. To be a lover of the sin. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. To love transgression. So for those folks that are so lost in the darkness, it's not just that they're committing a sin. Whatever the sin is. Okay? So, um, whatever. Stealing, murdering, um, uh, fornicating, you know, but to love the transgression and to love the strife that it generates. It means that you're in that place in Proverbs six where you're just you're just craving it. You know because it's going to impact others. You know that it's going to drive a wedge. You know that you can throw it in somebody's face because you love the strife. Loves the strife that results in friendship death. And uh, remember this in verse, when, when you're supposed to be concealing the transgression? Inst- instead it says in verse 9, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And you, find, you love the strife that, that separates this. The strife that you know is going to tweak things. You know it's going to it's going to cause that issue. And so we end up with it. We end up with broken homes. We end up with 
damaged relationships. We end up with um, issues. And, and the worst ones of all are the, are the sexual ones. The worst ones of all, I think. Um, and Scripture says they're the worst. But, you know, the, think about what these sexual sins do that other sins don't. So, um, stealing, okay? Uh, burglars, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, so someone breaks into your house and they steal something and they're gone, okay? That's bad, right? It's a sin. It's a crime. It's, uh, it's, uh, and it doesn't masquerade as family. The burglar doesn't come back at Christmas time and demand to participate in your family gatherings. But the, the carnal, sexual, homosexual partner of whatever, they pretend that they're family. They pretend that this is a marriage. They pretend that, they, that you should celebrate. No other sin does that. No other sin masquerades as, hey, I belong here and you must accept me and here we are. And so you're driving that wedge in there. That sin drives that wedge in there. And it's curious to me how this is just a defiance. And so, as as it says here again, um, verse 19, he who loves transgression loves strife. He has come to love the rebellion against God and he has come to love the ongoing effects that rebellion against God produces among God's children. The strife that... uh, Verse 9 says, uh, separates intimate friends. Or that Proverbs 6 says, separates into, uh, brothers even. In Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 19, and uh, the spreading of strife, a belial, a worthless person, a wicked man. This is the belial, the son of a belial. You Belial, you son of a Belial. It's, it's pejorative language and it's used biblically to represent these lovers of transgression, lovers of strife. One who walks with a perverse mouth. We'll have that also in chapter uh, 17. Who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. He's manipulative. He, uh, he works with others to get them involved in his sin with perversity in his heart, continually devises evil. He loves it. He can't wait to do the next one. He's already plotting the next one because he loved this one so much. And it's not even the, the deeds themselves, it's the very act of living in defiance of his creator God. And he loves that because he's able to put himself in the place of God. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he will be broken there will be no healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Notice this is all uh, descriptive of 21st century American culture. And God hates every bit of it. Haughty eyes. How much pride is there in America? Lying tongues. How much deceit is there in our culture? Hands that shed innocent blood. We've got such violence 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, one who spreads strife among brothers. The lover of transgression is the lover of strife. And this is the pinnacle of God's hatred. The greatest abomination on a, on a land. So the defiant love for what God personally hates the most. He loves obedience. He loves the chesed, loyalty, obedience. More than sacrifice. It all comes down to that. And we're either living our Christian walk under the trust and obey mindset or uh, we're loving the transgression and living in open defiance of what uh, God says in His Word. Anyway, that's a lot to unpack. Unpack. There I go. That's a lot to develop out of half of a verse, but this is just the first of the five hehus that are being warned against here in uh, Proverbs 17. So he who loves transgression, he who raises his door. All right, now this one's likely an idiom. This one's likely an idiom. It's not the front door of your house. It's not building the impressive gate, although it could be thought of that way. It's probably the wide open mouth. Um, anyway, we can. Uh, there's there's a lot, and the exegetes struggle with this. Even the the Jewish exegetes struggle with this, and they speak Hebrew. Uh, a lot of debates among the rabbis, as uh, in the commentary of this proverb. But what's curious to me is the two leading uh, conclusions. Either this is an idiomatic for your mouth. Or it's uh, architectural, it's a, it's a literal architectural door. In both cases, the attitude is one of pride. And so I think we can relax about the specific idiom and understand that the verse is addressing pride. So you're building this monster door, this gate to your property, uh, and that's a status thing in the neighborhood. That's a pride issue. Um, it, it, it reflects a couple of things. It, it communicates how important you are. It also, um, it also serves to keep the riffraff away. It keeps, uh, the, you know, you're better than them anyway, and, and you don't want to be bothered by them coming into your door. Uh, <laughs> and so if you want to take it architecturally, you're still fundamentally talking about a heart attitude of pride. Um, and it's the same thing with a mouth metaphor. Uh, that when you open your mouth wide, when you're boasting about your great achievements, uh, you know, about how great thou art, and, and the thou is yourself, and your <laughs> and uh, that's just not good. And so I think this does go very well with other idioms throughout Proverbs, like in chapter 16. Um, in 17, 9 we had it, and it comes back again in 18 and 29. And so I'm going to handle it like that, at least for today. <laughs> Might change my mind in the coming years. But So um, pride does go before destruction. And then a big clue in this, as we look at 17.19 again, the issue of destruction that's found there, he who raises his door seeks destruction. He's actively looking for what God says is the consequences of arrogance, is the consequences of pride. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. 
And that's been the case ever since Satan's pride launched the first rebellion of the angelic conflict. So seeking destruction. That, that settled it in my mind as I was studying this, that connection with destruction because it's connected with, with pride everywhere else in, uh, in the Proverbs. So Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And this is uh, what it's designed to do. We should just be humble. We should be humble and walking with our God. Verse 17 of, of that chapter says that the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his soul, preserves his nefesh. And so day by day we're just in God's hands for his mercy. And we say, all right, Lord, I want to I wanna follow you. I want to keep my eyes fixed on you. I want to turn away from evil. And I'm humble enough to realize that apart from your grace, I'm going to plunge headlong into it. That, uh, that I'm a stiff-necked uh, human being and, and I need your grace and the Word of God working in me so that I don't turn to the right or to the left. And um, the, the absolute worst thing I can do is get haughty and say, yeah, i got a handle on this. I'm a pretty good person. I've, uh, I've learned some Bible verses through the years. I know what I'm doing. And then you just start to assume that everything's fine, but you're not walking humbly with the Lord. And that's the pride that goes before. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment you think you're, you're handling it all right, you're not. You can't even walk unless he holds your hand. As the uh, country song goes. All right. So that's uh, sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty uh, spirit before stumbling. In chapter 17 and verse 9. I think that should be 19. Yeah, it should be 19 there. Because there's the destruction in that verse as well. Fix that. All right. Chapter 18 and verse 12. Before uh, destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Again, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And uh, the humble that, that God honors, when God praises, when God says, well done, good and faithful servant, that's, uh, there's the promotion. But people don't want to wait for that. <laughs> they don't want to wait. They want to promote themselves. They want to have uh, some recognition now. Chapter 29 and verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And what better example can we have than, than our Lord for this, right? He didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. He wasn't demanding uh, you know, the, all the rights and perks and privileges of, of a king. He laid aside his privileges. He came as a servant. He washed the disciples' feet. He says, that's the example for you to follow. You want an example for self-promotion? That's Satan. That's five I wills. That's somebody that's eternally dissatisfied with, with where God placed him. And, uh, and expressing that dissatisfaction, I should have a better seating assignment than this. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Or, or to be dissatisfied with a position. To be placed on earth. To be a terrestrial angel rather than a celestial angel. And he didn't like that. 
But, but that was where God placed him. That was where his throne was, his earthly throne, and Satan didn't like that. He wanted to be above the stars of God. He wanted to take his seat on God's seat. So Satan is the example of self-promotion. And if you promote yourself, good luck with that because God's going to bring you down. He's going to bring that down. He doesn't tolerate that. Does not. So uh, a man's pride will bring him low. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this lesson too. Remember that? He's walking around on his roof. He's thinking, wow, Babylon is so awesome. I'm so awesome because look what I did. And Daniel said no. You're going to get the mind of an animal for seven years until you learn some humility. And some of us take that long. Some of us take longer to, to learn the humility that we've got to learn. That God is in charge and He bestows things on whom He chooses. And He probably chooses, when He does exalt somebody, He, uh, he chooses the biggest fool He can so that He can teach more doctrine in, uh, in the process there. So don't be, uh, don't be envious if somebody else gets a promotion you thought you were entitled to. All right, so this is, uh, this is the he who in this capacity. Then we have the crooked heart. He who has a crooked heart. And this is again the, the lavav, the lave, the Hebrew lave, the mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. He who has a crooked heart. It says, finds no good. He who has a crooked mind or a crooked heart, lavav, finds no good. And I'm not sure which is worse, the deficient heart or the crooked heart. They're both bad. But he who is lacking sense, there is just diminished capacity uh, where it's lacking, where it's absent or deficient. Here, I think this is almost worse because it has full capacity. It's just crooked. It's turned to the wrong endeavor. And you almost want to think, you know, if it was deficient, it could do less damage. <laughs> it could do less, you know, it's, it's like, um, oh, I don't know, the, by the time my father-in-law passed away, he had congestive heart failure. By the time, you know, it was such a diminished function, such a diminished capacity, 5%, 10, I forget what 10%, whatever it was. But, you know, if, if you're on that deficient basis, then you're barely pumping blood through, you know. But here, it's just crooked. And it seems like it's full speed ahead. It seems like it's got full capacity. It's pumping away at 100%. But it's crooked. It's crooked. Anyway, all of these are idiomatic anyway. And, and the heart is the, is the soul, is the inner being. It's not the blood pumping organ in the chest. But nevertheless, as far as a metaphor goes... I'm not sure if deficient is, is better than or is worse than crooked or crooked is worse than deficient. They're both, they're both bad. And this guy finds no good. As crooked as he is, the end result is not divine good. It's not divine viewpoint. It's not a good outcome. It was previously seen in chapter 11 and verse 20. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked... Nope, wrong verse, 11.20. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. So there it's, it's the same verb, it's the same adjective rather for perverse, but it's crooked. In heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk is His 
delight. So, are you going to be simple? Are you going to walk with the Lord? Are you going to be crooked? And uh, that's an abomination. So we've seen it already, now we see it again. When we saw it in that chapter, we made a number of points. The heart drives the walk. The heart drives the walk. That's actually, the Lord makes that point, the New Testament makes that point. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It's your heart that determines how you, what you say, what you think, what you do. The heart drives the walk. So the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. The blameless in their walk are His delight. So when you have heart in the, in the A part of the poetry and walk in the B part of the poetry, we put them together and we see that this is the truth. That the heart is what drives the walk. You're not going to have a godly walk if you're perverted in your heart. Plain and simple. The blameless in their walk are blameless in their heart. And so it, the one drives the other. And it sparks either abomination or delight. Remember the metaphor of abomination. Remember the, the not the metaphor, but the, the, uh, the concept is one of pushing away. An abomination you push far away from you. And, and you push it as far away and you wish your arms were longer so you could push it further because that's the abomination. You want it nowhere near you. But the delight is the, is the reverse. Because the delight is the embrace. And, and you can't get any closer than, than the person you're hugging, right? That's the delight. And, you know, how, how close can you get? Well, how close can you hug the person? That's close. So abomination, pushing away. Delight, drawing to the bosom. Embracing. And these are the, these are the images that, that uh, are conveyed by the terminology of abomination and the terminology of delight. And so the heart drives the walk and it sparks one or the other as God observes and evaluates and interacts with His creatures. Proverbs 11, 20 and 21. Uh, The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are His delight. Assuredly the evil men will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So God judges and the heart starts it off and the actions, they're, they're both judged. The ways and the deeds are, are accountable before the Lord because He searches the heart. He tests the mind. And so we're accountable for what we think, we're accountable for our heart, we're accountable for the actions. Everything we do, we've got to do the right thing and we've got to do it in the right way for the right reasons. Because it's all accountable before the one who judges us. Matthew 12. Thankfully, even though the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, when we get saved we get a new heart. 
So let's, uh, let's start walking by that new heart and let's uh, stop walking by the old heart. Matthew 12, 34 and 35. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If it's a heart of darkness, if it's a crooked mind, then you're going to have perverse words. You're going to have perverse things spoken by that crooked mind. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. Notice the heart is the treasury. The heart is your storehouse. It's your treasury. It's where you should be hiding the word of God. You should be hiding the word in your heart that you don't sin against God. And then you can bring out of that treasure, you can bring applications, good words, good deeds, biblical applications. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. It's described here, thankfully, by the grace of God, we can get that new heart. The unbeliever, all he has is that Jeremiah 17 heart. All he has is the old heart in Adam. We have both, so long as we're still in this physical body. Still in Matthew, Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20. And the disciples, uh, the Pharisees, were all concerned about ritual purification, all concerned about all these things of holiness. They tried to outdo the priests in their own application. They weren't even priests, but they invented their own water purification rituals because as uh, Pharisee righteous people, they were obviously better than the priests, and so they needed to have purification water rituals, even if Leviticus never gave them any. So they made some for themselves. And uh, Jesus says, are you kidding me? Are you still lacking in understanding also? You Bible know-it-alls sure know a lot, but you don't understand any of it. You have knowledge, but not understanding. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Every wicked thing spoken and every wicked thing done started as a wicked thing in the heart thinking about it, wanting to do it, dwelling on it, loving it, loving the transgressions. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You don't have to have a ritual purification before you eat dinner. You're not a Levitical priest. You're an arrogant Pharisee. And uh, there you go. All right, so that's uh, the Lord's dealing with. So if the heart drives the walk, we could be doomed. (laughs) It's a grim concept for the unregenerate heart in Adam. If the heart drives the walk, the unbeliever has no hope. The unbeliever, there's nothing the unbeliever can do. He can can put on a show, he can put on an act. He can try to be a self-reformed, you know, but he's still just a fallen man in Adam. So this is a grim concept for the unregenerate heart in Anna, but it's a grace blessing for the new heart in 
Christ. And even uh, try to separate it out from a dispensational issue as well. Even on an Old Testament basis. An Old Testament believer was never placed in Christ, but an Old Testament believer was born again by grace through faith. An Old Testament believer was made alive in his human spirit. He was given a new heart like you and I are given a new heart. That's not a, a church blessing. That's a born again blessing for all believers of all stewardships. Because we have it in Psalm 24, you have it in Psalm 51, and that's not mystery doctrine, that's not church age material. Psalm 24, 4. I think it's useful when you study the, uh, the 33 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation, or the 36 things, 39 things, uh, 96 things, depending on which pastor you're listening to. When you study all the things that happened to you, the moment of salvation, study that out, but then make a check mark and recognize the ones that are purely church only versus the ones that were also true in the Old Testament. That's a very fruitful, uh, worthwhile, and I think necessary study to undertake. So, um, you know, receiving eternal life, guess what? They got it too, okay? Old Testament believers, David, Moses, Noah, of course they got eternal life. That's not, a church, that's not exclusive to the royal family of God and the body of Christ. But the royal family of God, that's, that's us. The body of Christ, that's us, not them. Spiritual gift, that's us, not them. All the things that are ours, and it's useful to, to kind of categorize those things. Everything we get the moment we're saved, and then it's a smaller list of everything they got the moment they were saved in the Old Testament. All right, a new heart, they got it too, same as us. Uh, So who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He's the owner. He built it, it's his. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the the cosmos or the world and all those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Now these are rhetorical questions. We can answer them. In order to be worthy of God's presence, who can do that? Well, nobody in Adam will tell you that. No unbeliever. No fallen man. Adam and Eve could have before they fell. But after they fell, fallen humanity doesn't qualify. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Specifically, Jesus is the only one qualified, sinless and perfect, until he makes the rest of us qualified. He is the firstborn of many brethren. But the only one who can ascend is the one who descended He who descended can ascend. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has, here's a he who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, that's Jesus only, but that's the rest of us when he gives us the the new heart, when he gives us the clean hands and the pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood? Who has not sworn 
deceitfully. Now, positionally, of course, we're all sinners, but it's taken away from us and imputed to Him. Our sins are no longer reckoned to us. And so we can make this statement now as a believer, I have clean hands, I have a pure heart, because He gave them to me. I have not lifted up my soul to falsehood, I have not sworn deceitfully, because all of my sin has been laid on Him. It's been removed. So I haven't done that. I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint in Christ positionally. What a concept. What a blessing for us to be saved. Psalm 51.10 Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Here he is confessing his Bathsheba adultery sin. And he's confessing his sin. Against you, you only have I sinned. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He doesn't love transgression. He hates it. And he's confessing. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. If he would have hidden the word in his heart and lived that word, he never would have committed the adultery. Never would have murdered Uriah and everything else that followed. You desire truth in the innermost being. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He does this at salvation and He does this over and over and over again experientially every time we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and block out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Acts 15.9 This is why we need a heart transplant. Clifton Jansky, a Christian country music singer from San Antonio, and he wrote that song and sings it. It's called, uh, I Need a Heart Transplant from the Great Physician. I need a heart transplant because mine's in bad condition. And he's talking about the fallen heart in, in Adam and the new heart in Christ, and it's a uh, There's no waiting list. The bill's already been paid. (laughs) It's a fun song. All right. Acts 15, 9. And what do you know? These Gentiles can get saved. Look at that. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Look at that. Gentiles can get saved like we got saved. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You're going to put them under law? Are you kidding me? This is the church. We're saved by grace. All right. so the unregenerate heart in Adam versus the new heart in Christ 
recognizing that the grace of God makes these things possible, we don't have to fear that the heart drives the walk and sparks either abomination or delight. We can celebrate that the heart drives the walk and just make sure we're using the new heart to drive our walk. And things are fine after that. So Father, I thank you for this study. I thank you for Proverbs. And hard to imagine it was written 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, but here it is, Father, just as live and powerful today as ever. Might we learn it, might we live it. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.